Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, Jared wasn't able to be here today, so uh, Jonathan was already scheduled for scripture reading, so he was doing everything this morning, so I appreciate that. And uh, that can be a lot. Sometimes I'm doing the things I'm already planning on, and it's still a lot. So, Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, turn to Acts 3. As you're turning there, at first glance, two situations might look exactly the same. But looking closer, you start to see differences. Different places, different languages, different religious customs. Assuming you know how a story will unfold just because it starts the same way can be dangerous. Today we'll look at the similarities and differences between the healings of two lame men. Peter heals a lame man in Jerusalem and then preaches a sermon to the Jewish people, including some of the religious leaders. This takes place just outside the temple in Jerusalem. And then Paul heals a lame man in Lystra, seemingly near their pagan temple, then preaches a sermon to a pagan crowd. Two lame men, two healings, two temples, but two very different sermons by the apostles and different responses by the people. And yet the same God works through his Holy Spirit to bring salvation to many. From these passages, I would encourage you in terms of an evangelistic application to know your audience and point them to God, to know your audience and point them to God. Point religious people from themselves to God. This is what I think we see in Acts chapter 3. Point religious people from themselves to God. Notice what Peter says in his sermon. He reminds them that no human gets credit for God's work. No human gets credit for God's work. The people are full of amazement. Peter addresses them in verse 12. Why are you amazed or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? This is not our power. This is not our righteousness. We don't get to take credit for the fact that this man who Acts 4 says is more than 40 years old suddenly is walking and leaping and praising God. This is not us. This is God. Jesus is the one who heals the sick. He says this in verses 13 and 16. The God of Abraham has glorified his servant Jesus. Verse 16, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man, whom you see and know. We don't take credit for it. God gets credit for it, what he did through his son Jesus. And by the way, you're not as good as you think you are. If you say, well, maybe it's not Peter and John's piety, Maybe it's not Jesus. Maybe we should get credit. Maybe it's because we're the people of Israel. That's why this man got healed. Peter says, no, the Messiah came. You delivered and disowned him before Pilate when he was ready to let him go. You disowned him and asked for a murderer to be granted to you in place of the holy and righteous one. You put to death the prince of life. God raised him from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. They were sinners. They thought, we're Israelites. We have the temple. We have the law. We have the high priest. We honor God. And God says, no. When the Messiah came, you killed him. When the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of the Old Testament was standing right in front of you, you rejected him. So to the extent that you think this man is now walking and you're amazed because you think we're God's people and we should get credit for that, no. The only basis for this miracle is not the apostles, not the people of Israel, not the fact that they're Israelites, not the fact that they're near the temple. It is God's power through Jesus whom he appointed as the Messiah. 
He continues, not only remind them that no human gets credit for God's work, but he says to warn them with mercy and with fear. God sees ignorance even as he fulfills his word. Verses 17 and 18. I know you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. They with less ignorance than you, but there's a degree to which you did not realize all of what was going to take place when you rejected the Messiah. That from a human perspective, this would delay his coming by some 2,000 years and counting in our day, right? To rule and to reign as the one over the entire world. You didn't necessarily understand all of what you were doing, but God was unfolding his plan anyway. The things which God announced by the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. God sees your ignorance and God fulfills his promises anyway. You were unfaithful, God was faithful. You acted in ignorance, God knew that you were going to do it, and God sent Jesus anyway. What is he calling you to do then? Repent and wait for Jesus' return. Repent and return. You repent. You turn back to God. You're supposed to be his people. Turn to him and be his people. You're living in sin. Turn from that sin and follow God and receive his righteousness through Jesus. Why? So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You might think that Satan has won, that God's plan has failed, that the Messiah has come and gone, so what hope is there for the future? People will repent. God will send him once more. He will come back and establish his kingdom. God has not forgotten his promises. Though from a human perspective, those things seem delayed. Though from a human perspective, you thwarted God's plan. In that moment, Satan lost, your opposition failed, and God's plan prevailed. And God will keep fulfilling his word. And God will send the Christ appointed for you, verse 20. And he will be in heaven until the time comes in which the restoration of all things take place. You saw a glimpse of that when he was among you. He made the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and those who couldn't speak to speak. He raised the dead. He preached the truth. He evidenced righteousness. You got a glimpse of it for three, three and a half years. There's coming a day in which all things will be restored. Not only is he going to do this for a handful of people in the land of Jerusalem and in the place of the Samaritans and the Gentiles, there's a day coming when he's going to reign over the entire earth and the curse of sin will be temporarily reversed in anticipation of it being finally destroyed. That is a time to look forward to. Do not lose hope simply because you have sinned. Turn from that sin so that that day will come in God's time. But take care that you don't reject the words of God or harsh judgment will fall. Moses said, God's going to raise up for you a prophet. Every soul that doesn't heed that prophet will be destroyed. Just because there's this time of blessing that will come if you repent, don't fail to take notice that there is a corresponding time of judgment that will follow if you reject. Every soul that does not heed the words of the prophet shall be utterly destroyed. Likewise, See in God's offer of salvation, his mercy and faithfulness. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and successors onward also announce these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying, In your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has promised this will happen, and it will happen. Verse 26, God raised up first for you his servant Jesus and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. God is keeping his promise that he made to Abraham centuries ago. You need to turn to him. 
Don't let God's judgment fall on you because you stubbornly refuse to repent. Don't be like those who came before who ignored the prophets and killed the prophets and went through the exile and now are under the foot of Rome. Be those who pay attention to God's word. Seeing God's offer of salvation is mercy and faithfulness. So point religious people from themselves to God. No human gets credit for God's work. Warn them with mercy and with fear. Not every religious person thinks that he's above sin and is a good person, but a whole lot of them do. They're often too busy looking at other people's sins to see their own. So they don't think they need God's mercy. Reminding them that nobody is good enough to reach God and that God calls them to repent because they are sinners is a good starting point with such people. So if you're talking to someone and in the course of your conversation, that person starts to say things like, well, I'm not that bad of a person, or will I do this good thing, or something like that, there's a decent chance that Acts 3 is a good template for you to look at of how you should talk to that person. You think you're a good person. You ever lied? You ever stolen? You ever lusted? You ever hated? You ever done any of those things? If that's the case, you're not a good person. God demands absolute perfection, and you don't live up to that standard. So if God demands perfection, and you don't meet his standard, you can't say I'm a good person. Well, but I do this and this and this and this. Doesn't matter. You cannot, it's, it's like saying, well, let's swim the Atlantic Ocean. Somebody who's an Olympic swimmer is going to get a little further than you, but you're both going to drown. It's too big of a gap for you to make up. You can't do it. What then does God want you to do? Stop trusting in yourself. Don't say, well, I'm a good person. Don't say, well, I haven't done too many bad things. This is not like the story of the two people in the woods and they're chased by a bear. The one starts putting his shoes on. And he says, why are you doing that? You can't outrun a bear. He says, I just have to outrun you. That's not how it works with God. Just because you outrun that guy doesn't mean you can outrun God's wrath. It doesn't work that way. You need to turn from your sin. There is hope. No matter what you have done, you may not think it's that big of a deal. God says it's enough to condemn you. But there's also forgiveness if you turn to Jesus. But don't think this is something you can put off forever because now is the day of salvation. You may not be here tomorrow, right? There's a song I heard on the radio a while back. And in it, the guy is talking about the idea that sooner or later, everybody encounters God. So there's this guy berating the guy sitting at the diner. What are you praying for? God's not dead. God's not real. This is a waste of your time. This guy says, you know what? I'm going to pray for you. And the guy goes out, gets into a car accident. He didn't know that his conversation with God was going to be later that day. That's the urgency that we have to stress to people. And that is perhaps just a really quick run through of how we might use some of these ideas from Acts 3 in talking with someone who thinks himself to be religious. Pagan people, however, are starting, humanly speaking, from a further distance away from God. There's even more basic truth about God that they don't know. A lot of religious people say, I believe that there's a God, I believe that there's right and wrong. Their sticking point is, I think that I'm okay. For pagan people, a lot of them 
need to recognize even basic truth about what God is like. Turn over to Acts 14. Acts 14, the idea would be this. Point pagan people from their idols to God. Now, can religious people have idols? Sure, the Israelites did for a lot of their history, and we would say, well, they were religious. They had the law and all those sorts of things. They were this weird mix of pagan and religiosity at the same time, right? Then in the New Testament, we see them behaving much like the religious leaders in Acts 3, 4, and 5, and thinking, we're good with God because we don't do that idolatry anymore. But you start talking to a pagan person who's immersed in idolatry, point them from their idols to turn to God. First of all, remind them that no created thing deserves worship. No created thing deserves worship. We read kind of the background. There's this man outside, seemingly, the pagan temple. And Paul says, stand upright. He leaps. He begins to walk. The people start having this conversation in their own language, which it seems Paul and Barnabas didn't know that the gods have come down among us, so now we're going to make sacrifices to them. When Paul and Barnabas realize what's happening, they're saying, don't do this. Why? No created thing deserves worship. We are men of the same nature as you. Don't worship us because we didn't do this by our power. They're emphatically not gods. They take their clothes. They tear their clothes. They cry out to the people, don't worship us. Don't sacrifice to us. We're not Zeus and Hermes come down to be among you. We're, not, we're men just like you. Furthermore, verse 15, God calls people to turn to repent of vain things to turn to him as the creator. Stop worshiping idols. Stop worshiping created things. Don't worship fish and bulls and the sea and the land and the sky and whatever else you've been worshiping. Don't worship those things. That's foolish. Those are created things. Worship the God who actually made all these things. Don't worship the things God made. Worship the creator. Show them furthermore God's goodness in creation. God has been patient with ignorant sinners. Is this sounding familiar to what we just looked at in Acts 3? God is patient ignorant sinners. Verse 16, he permitted the nations to go their own ways. Yet God testified to himself with patience and goodness. He did not leave himself without witness. He did good and gave you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. All good things are from God, not the God's. Now, pagan people have a kind of self-righteousness, but it tends to be trust in things external to themselves versus their own personal character. There's a little bit of both, right? And there are parallels in the message that Paul gives, the message that Peter gives, but their starting point is different. Their starting point with the people of Israel was, you are religious people, turn to the God you claim to worship. With the pagan people, it's you're worshiping the wrong gods, turn to the true God. He's the creator. The Jews already knew all those things, but were focused on themselves. The pagans might not have known any of those things, and they needed to know these basic truths about God. When I say trust in external things, it tends to be things for pagan people like worship of idols. Uh, in some places around the world, it is uh, ancestor worship. In other places, it's the worship of demons. In other places, it's things like astrology and looking at horoscopes and other places it's we're going to worship nature and 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 have sort of this communal i saw an article i don't know a couple of years ago and it was advocating a practice called forest bathing just go out and stand in the woods and sort of soak all of it in 
Couldn't do that this year because of the mosquitoes. But even if you could, that is a kind of paganism, right? Should we go out and recognize that God made it all and enjoy the beauty of his creation through a hike or biking through the woods or whatever else? Sure. But acting as though we're going to have some connection with the rhythms of nature and that's a religious experience, that's paganism, right? It's dressed up in a modern sort of guise. We wouldn't, you know, strip naked and dance around in a grove in the forest. Most people wouldn't do that sort of thing. But going and standing in the forest and saying, I'm connecting with Mother Nature is the same kind of paganism dressed up a little bit, right? So when we encounter people in the first example, it's people, maybe they go to church. Maybe they try to be good people. Maybe they uh, are upstanding citizens. Those people need to hear, you're not as good as you think you are. God calls you to repent. People who are pagan people often recognize that they're sinners, right? Sometimes they even boast in it, right? I can get more drunk than you. I've had more immoral relationships than you. So there's not a question of recognizing typically that they do things that deep down in their hearts they know to be wrong. It's acknowledging that instead of loving all of these things that are empty idols, physical objects or feelings or actions, I need to turn from those things and turn to God because in the same way, um, God is eventually going to judge the earth. So point them to the true God as creator to whom they're accountable. They know that all this didn't happen by accident. They know deep down in their hearts that there's right and wrong. Link those two things together. Because God made you, God can call you into account. You need to turn to him. Don't misinterpret his blessing in the short term as an indefinite extension of his mercy. So what might this look like? You're talking to the person who goes out and does the worshiping nature thing in whatever form. Ask him about hurricanes and forest fires. Oh, well, that's global warming. Oh, that's just natural disasters. Okay. Let's say that those are the work of human people. If your God is so weak as to be destroyed by the efforts of people throwing away particular kinds of garbage and putting plastic in the ocean, is that really God you should be worshiping? I mean, you can't have it both ways, right? Either your God is powerful, and so eventually all these efforts of people are going to get reversed, right? Or your God is not powerful and people can trample all over him or her. Can't have it both ways, right? Point out the flaws of worshiping a God that you've invented in your mind that isn't powerful enough to do what, what you need, right? Do what Elijah did with the prophets of Baal. If your God cares about you, what's going on in all these things, right? And they might say, well, but the Christian God, well, yeah, but we have an explanation for that in Christianity, right? There's sin in the world. There's tribulation as we follow Jesus. Someday he's going to fix it all, right? We have an explanation for that. Their worldview has no explanation for the fact that you're worshiping a God that's either weak and can't fix things or chooses not to. You have either a God that hates you or a God that's powerless, right? And I realize these aren't slam dunk arguments. I'm just saying engage with people on these basic levels and when I say point them to God as creator, I don't mean get into an argument about creation versus evolution. 
I just say, I'm saying, assume as fact, God made the world. God made the world. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. No. You can believe that all you want, but the fact is, here's what God did. All right? And so, if this is what God did, and it is, here's what that means for you. Now, I said it can be dangerous to confuse the two situations. It can also be dangerous to get them right. Why do I say that? Well, Acts 4 and 5 we didn't get into, but the religious leaders arrest Peter and John first, and then in Acts 5, they beat them and then release them again, and then in Acts 12, they decide they're going to kill Peter by means of Herod. Herod decides it makes the Jews happy to persecute people, so let's kill Peter. So there's this escalation of opposition to the message that Peter and John are proclaiming in Acts 3. So it can be dangerous from a personal perspective in terms of if I misidentify where someone's at, I'm going to say, humanly speaking, the wrong things to them and not the truth they need to hear. It can be dangerous even if I say the right things, but that doesn't mean it's not worth doing it, right? Acts 14, what happens right after the section that we looked at? Jews came over from Antioch and Iconium and won over the crowds and stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. People argue about whether Paul was actually raised from the dead. I tend to think that he was. Whether he was or not, he's severely beaten within an inch of his life or he's dead. God gives him the strength to raise up. Either of those things are miracles. We're not, not really arguing whether God does a miracle, just the scope of the miracle that God does. So my point in saying that is, if you start down the lines of conversation with someone, either someone who's a religious person who doesn't want to hear you're a sinner, or someone who's a pagan person who doesn't want to hear there's a creator and you're accountable to him, you're going to face opposition sooner or later. It's still worth doing. Why? What happened in Acts 3? Many of those who had heard the message, I'm sorry, Acts 4, verse 4, many of those who heard the message believed. Okay? The church prays together at the end of Acts 4, and God answers them with the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ in the temple and from house to house. Acts 14, after they preached the gospel and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Satan tries to stop the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church at every turn, and every time he tries, it fails and the church multiplies more. So when you and I encounter opposition, we should not be shocked or dismayed, we should rejoice that we are united with Jesus in the opposition he faced from sinners. We should be confident that God's gospel will go forward regardless, and we should keep doing it because as long as we draw breath, this is what God calls us to do. And so instead of being discouraged, life is now harder because I'm talking to more people about Jesus, we should say, I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do, and the worst thing that can happen is that they take my life away from me and in this present society that we live in, that's not really likely. So the worst thing you and I are likely to face in these instances, when we have these conversations with religious people or with pagan people, is they're going to reject us. But again, that shouldn't surprise us. What are the three responses we see in the book of Acts? Curiosity, we want to hear more about this. Rejection, 
we want nothing to do with this, belief, we call on the name of Jesus. And sometimes people move between those groups, right? And so when we look at the way that God worked in the life of the church in the book of Acts in these two brief situations, we should say, how can I identify the situation, which sort of person I'm talking to, and present to them the truth from God that's most applicable to their situation as best I can tell? Trust God for the result and keep on going confident that God is going to save the people that he intends to save and we have the privilege and the opportunity of being part of that. Know your audience and point them to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths from your word. We thank you for the fact that you have given us the opportunity to be a part of your work in the world. We pray that you would help us to be diligent about this work that you're calling us to, to be wise in observing what is going on in people's lives and trying to connect with them on those points that we observe to recognize that your spirit will work in us regardless of humanly speaking the outcome and eventually work in those people either to call them to account for the message they've heard and rejected or hopefully by your grace that they will turn from their sins and follow you and either of those are outcomes that bring you glory so lord help us to be faithful in what you've called us to do we pray this in christ's name amen